Thank you for joining the Washington Patient Safety Coalition's podcast series. Today, we're going to be talking about individuals with disabilities in the healthcare system. People with disabilities face many barriers to good health. About one in four people in the United States have a disability. According to the World Health Organization, the number of people with disability are dramatically increasing. This is due to demographic trends and increases in chronic health conditions, among other causes. Almost everyone is likely to experience some form of disability, temporary or permanent, at some point in life. The Center for Disease Control states that people with disabilities face many barriers to good health. Studies show that individuals with disabilities are more likely than people without disabilities to report having poor overall health, having less access to adequate health care, and engaging in risky health behaviors, including smoking and physical inactivity. The World Health Organization noted that people with disability are disproportionately affected during the COVID-19 pandemic. And notice they use the present tense because we're not out of it yet. This was made apparent here in the US and certainly in Washington state where COVID-19 got its foothold in a long-term care facility. It's unfortunate that it took a pandemic to raise our awareness of the healthcare issues people with disabilities face. Today, we're going to discuss the barriers that people with disabilities face in healthcare with Kim Connor, Executive Director of the Washington State Independent Living Council, and Mark Leeper, Executive Director of Disability Action Network Northwest. What I'd like to do first is have them introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their backgrounds. So Mark, let me turn it over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, I'm Mark Leeper, and I'm, uh, I was actually born in, in Idaho. I now live in Washington State, um, but uh, lived part of my life up in Canada. So I've kind of had that experience on, on two sides of an international border. Um, I have a history, personal history of, of mental health issues uh, that led to it's a significant involvement in the mental health system or the medical system. Um, over the course of a number of years, I'm always uh, happy to have contributed uh, uh, lots of money to various uh, uh, expenses in the medical field, I'm sure. Uh, I'm a suicide survivor. I uh, never saw myself as working in the field of disability, and, and I really never saw myself as a person with a disability. Uh, and some days I still struggle with that, partly for reasons that we'll talk about later, I'm sure, just that whole sense of what is a disability. I work with Disability Action Center Northwest. It's one of about 400 centers for independent living uh, across the country that are characterized by being run by people with various kinds of disabilities. Um, I always talk about us as having kind of a two-prong approach. We work with individuals with a disability, any kind of disability, to realize their goals for living as independently as they choose and having the control over their lives that they choose. And then we work with communities to try to help them understand about the broad nature of humanity uh, as it pertains to disability. And so each of those kind of dovetails with the other. Um, It's... uh, I think an interesting, interesting, interesting process because the uh, uh, so many people with a disability have not ever really thought about it in that same way. And uh, so we, we end up training both communities and individuals. We've been around since the uh, late 70s, Centers for Independent Living and Disability Action Center, which is actually housed as its uh, primary location in Moscow, Idaho, um, was formed in 1980. Um, Washington currently has five uh, centers uh, with four of them based in Washington. Uh, And again, all characterized by being run by folks with a disability and based on that peer model that we as people with a disability um, know an awful lot about our own lives and can kind of support each other in uh, gaining control over them. Thanks, Mark. How about you, Kim? Yes, thanks, Steve. Um, I am Kim Connor. I work for the Washington State Independent Living Council. Uh, I've worked for them for coming up on five years now. Always worked in social justice uh, arena in my career. Uh, And now I'm working in in the disability community, which has been very interesting um, as I learn more about 
disability and self-determination and what that looks like for individuals uh, reflecting on my own family and the history of mental health disabilities in our family um, is, is been quite introspective for me. I work for a council uh, that is um, by law made up of at least 51% of people with disabilities that identify being with a disability, uh, having a disability. We are a governor appointed council uh, and we are a statewide cross disability network that, um, that uh, advocates, educates and collaborates with the broader um, community and uh, around disability issues and uh, systemic disability, uh, systemic issues in our, in our systems that create barriers for people with disabilities and work very closely with the Centers for Independent Living. We are actually through the Rehabilitation Act tied together as working partners, um, equal working partners. Um, so we, we uh, work together as a family and, and, uh, and just like a family, we, for the most part, work well together and sometimes we disagree and that's okay. <laughs> Uh, but ultimately, our goal is um, is to serve the people um, with disabilities in the state of Washington. Do you, do you Kim? Do you find that the um, state is very supportive of the work you're doing? I do. Um, we we sit kind of funny. We are like I said, a governor appointed organization, but we definitely through the through federal law, um, sit independently. Um, although um, physically we sit within state offices with the Department of Vocational Rehab um, in Lacey, Washington. And so um, we, because we, we sit inside of that department, we have those relationships that we build with, within um, DSHS, Department of Social um, Health Services and other agencies, um, Department of Health, actually through the COVID pandemic, and I'll talk about a little bit later, we've really developed our relationships with them and the emergency management departments at the state level as well as the local levels. So yeah, it's been um, some really good partnerships have come out of the pandemic. That's great. So, you know, I guess I'd like to um, start with something really basic for those folks who are listening who may not you know, really be familiar with it. But when we talk about people with disabilities, who are we actually referring to? And I know you, Mark, you already mentioned, you know, mental health experience as you did, Kim. I mean, people see uh, folks in wheelchairs, et cetera. But, you know, tell me more about, uh, you know, who, who are people, what is, what is a disability and, you know, who's impacted? Well, that's a, a really interesting question because um, it, and it kind of goes back a little bit to Kim's response about the state supporting the State Independent Living Council and independent living is there are numerous traditional systems and then there's kind of what really is out on the street and so on. So in a real sense, an official sense, you have workers' compensation will have one definition of disability. Uh, Social Security has a dis definition. The Americans with Disabilities Act talks about somebody with a physical, physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity or somebody with a history of an impairment like that or who might be seen as having that sort of impairment. So all of these things are kind of the official view. What we're basically talking about is somebody that has an impact on their life um, that is occurring because of something that we would say is is not well. It's 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 a it is that physical or mental impairment. I guess the ADA is really the broadest definition. Uh, we estimate about fifty four million people in the country. I think it's it's really hard because the image or the view that people have of disability often is focused on one particular group and it's whoever they identify with initially is the first thought that comes into mind is somebody who uses a wheelchair. So it's a physical disability. And then, oh yeah, somebody who's blind. So then they, you know, they think about that. And then somebody who's deaf or uh, somebody with an intellectual disability. So it really depends. People tend to compartmentalize 
And so that definition of disability, while it's really, really broad, tends to be interpreted very differently by different folks. And you also, to add to that, you have the unseen disabilities, right? So you have the people that have cerebral palsy in the, in the beginning of their cerebral palsy or um, some other um, um, MS where you visually cannot see that, but that doesn't mean that they well, their life is altered because, or they do things differently because they have a disability or people that have chronic um, pain, um, severe chronic pain. You can't tell by looking at them um, that they have a disability, but they're, you know, managing their lives, making sure whatever the regimen is so that they can function the way that they want to function in their life um, is different than the way an able-bodied person functions in a day. Traumatic brain injury is another great example because that uh, we're seeing so much in terms of the accumulated uh, um, effects of, of impacts like playing football, playing soccer. And so those things that really aren't seen and sometimes are discounted for a long period of time. Um, but that's part of that disability community. And it really, really affects the medical um, community a lot because they can have such an impact on the person's health care. You know, it's interesting, as I listen to the two of you, you come to realize that um, a disability is not necessarily specific to a group of people that we all, at some point in our lives, might, you know, have a disability, maybe move uh, in, in a, you know, uh, different degrees of that. But I think uh, as someone who maybe temporarily uh, is not, does not have dis a disability um, that it, it's really kind of um, not realistic to look at it from afar. You know, you have to, you have to think about it that, Hey, this could happen to me, or in some respect it is happening to me already. And I may not even recognize it. So, um, and I think it seems like, you know, my naivety of growing up in the healthcare system in the United States it, um, it was always something that was kind of looked at as a separate, you know, defined group of people. And I think that it's, it's not, I mean, that's, that's kind of the realization that I'm, I'm coming to. Well, there's so much that's involved in terms of stigma related to disability. Mm -hmm. um, how much do people, cause so a lot of times people try to talk you out of affiliating with those people. No, you don't really have a disability. You just have this going on. You just have this. And so there's that tendency to draw away from, you know, and yet at some point we all need something related to some sensory uh, impact as we age, physical impact as we age, uh, whatever. I mean, it's just it, it, like you say, it's going to happen. And it's just a matter of when. Exactly. I mean, when, and, you, yeah. when you talk about that, it makes me think about so as our um, aging population or, or our population is aging, right? And people start slowing down and they need uh, assistive technology like a walker or a cane, or um, they're in a wheelchair for a while um, because they, their mobility is limited. And we've always talked about it for right, decades. Oh, it's just people getting old. What if we would have 50 years ago talked about, oh, our population our elderly is aging and we have an elderly population how can we make it better for them how can we make things more accessible we might have had curb cut, curb cuts 50 years ago mm -hmm. instead of just recently if we would have thought about it in those terms instead of you know um, attaching that stigma or the shame and not being wanting as mark said be one of you know i don't want to belong to that population no, exactly. You know, when I think about our technology too, it seems that our technology has been keeping pace with the baby boomers who are the largest users of the technology. And, you know, they're the driving force as opposed to like you were saying, Kim, you know, if we had taken a realization of this, we would have been way ahead of the curve, you know, b before this. Um, and, and, and speaking about things that, that have, um, really brought this to the forefront 
you know, let, let, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, how is our, how, how's this incredible event that we are still in? Um, how has our healthcare system addressed people living with a disability over the past year? How, what's been the impact of COVID-19, that experience, um, you know, on people with disabilities? Yeah, it's a, that's a that's a big question, and it can yeah. go in a lot of di- different directions. So I'll just start the conversation and see where we go with that. Okay. So in general, it's impacted the disability community hugely. Um, if you are a person with a disability and your disability um, is uh, uh, compromises your immune system in any way, whatever that may be, it could be an immune immune, or it could be other other kinds of disabilities where you're just more susceptible, um, people started, you know, isolating and isolating probably more so than other folks. Um, so then, as we know, and we've talked about in general public, people's mental health has declined. Um, it, it, uh, you know, they were, they were in their homes. They weren't getting out. They weren't being able to access, you know, um, suitable transportation, right? If you, if you use transportation, if you, you don't drive and you use paratransportation, and then all of a sudden we have COVID, you can't get in your car and be safe in your car because paratransportation is, you know, multiple people in a, in a small vehicle and a small bus. Um, so it, it, it's, it's had a very dramatic impact on the disability community. And then, and then not to mention, We'll get in, you know, to the healthcare, to access, to access to getting a test, to access to a vaccine site, um, to having the policymakers and planners actually thinking about the disability community um, when they're not used to thinking about the disability community and thinking about not only the disability community, but you have the intersectionality of other um, um, undervalued communities that the disability community is in all of those communities. They're in the black indigenous people of color um, communities. They're in the LGBTQ communities. Um, disability is everywhere. Um, so when you have the uh, uh, s- several um, um, kind of undervalued, you identify with several different populations that are undervalued. It even increases your risk and increases your vulnerability. Mark, you, you, you had mentioned that, um, you know, you work, you know, with um, homes where people, if I'm not, if I'm correct, you know, where people disabilities live together um, or being self-sufficient, um, do you, I mean, any examples at all, like your observations of a year ago, of, you know, what, what happened and. Well, we, we, uh, we actually, uh, we don't do any, any kind of residential stuff, but we do okay. work certainly closely with, with folks. one of the, our core services actually is helping people get out of institutional settings. And that's uh-huh. been a huge endeavor nationwide because of the death rate, quite frankly, uh, of COVID in institutional settings. Uh, so we ran what we, we heard were a lot of things with respect to disability. Number one is, is that people couldn't get personal assistance in. They couldn't get people in that would help them do things. Communication access wasn't happening because people wouldn't either have the electronic uh, um, you know, piece that they needed and folks they were communicating with might not have the technology to have interpreters, um, uh, whatever. Uh, so we ran into a, a lot of those issues related to COVID in various places. And so with the, a lot of the federal funding, actually, that centers like ours got to help um, with uh, mitigate some of those, those issues that people were facing across the board because of COVID, people with disabilities, went to trying to help people get out of those institutional settings. So, um, but I think- I mean, this, this was a horrible situation, you know, and- I mean, especially in the beginning, because I mean, they didn't even know what the, uh, you know, how it spread, and you know, as it went on. I mean, what what did you do? I mean, how were people getting out of institutions? I mean, 
Well, you know, a lot of strong advocates um, kind of came in and, and, and there were some legal challenges of, of saying that people had to have access to the supports they needed. You know, it was at the early parts of it, it was really a moving target and there wasn't a whole lot that people were able to do. You know, it was six months after the fact that really people started being helped uh, to move out. Uh, early on, nobody knew what they were dealing with. And things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, you know, require that people have reasonable modifications to policies, practices, and procedures, and so on and so forth. Unless one of the things, if there's a legitimate safety concern, and of course, like you said, nobody knew exactly what even the transmission uh, methodology was uh, early on in the process. And so really places went on lockdown and places are still on lockdown in many respects. Uh, my uh, um, mother, stepmother lives in a, a place up in Calgary, Alberta, and they just recently had an outbreak and they were entirely shut down. She said if she ever saw another meal in a styrofoam uh, box, she'd probably just quit eating. But, uh, you know, it's just... It, it was just an incredibly hard time. And so um, as it started to, to open up a little bit and people got in contact with folks, then a lot of advocacy organizations started to talk to people and helped uh, paying for hotel rooms, whatever, getting folks out of those congregate settings um, so that they could be a little bit safer. But it was very much a moving target and uh, it was certainly helped by the infusion of a whole lot of money nationwide to try to support people. I mean, you know, this is the thing that I, I still can't really comprehend is that um, it does, if someone with a disability might require, you know, support, uh, you know, people around them, I mean, just for physical assistance, possibly, if not for, for other things. I mean, if we were trying to avoid each other, how, I mean, how did that all work out? That's what's so crazy. It is indeed. And that yeah, was it's tough. It's tough to do that, right? So, I mean, the, the whole country was on a learning curve as well, right? So we were all on a learning curve and we, we understand that as you know as well. And it, it, was, it was tough not to do that. And I think people, we hear stories that people really cared about. If you talk about um, personal assistance, so there are folks that, require a certain amount of hours of personal assistance a day to live their lives. And there were personal assistants that that's their paid job that, um, that went in and did that work, even though they didn't know. Um, because it, it, they're talking, because we're talking about human beings and they cared about the human beings that they were taking care of or that they were providing services to they reword that. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that just happened and there was a lot of fear. Um, it, uh, and it was, there's a lot of fear for the person with a disability too, not knowing, knowing that they needed the support services to be able to live their independent life, but not having a lot of control over who's coming in their, in their, in their house and, and are they getting PPEs? And um, I mean, they, the personal care attendants were not one of the top priorities to get PPEs and, and, you know, navigating how to get testing so that you're, you know, not spreading um, COVID. And it, it was tough. It was, it was really tough and people had to make some very hard decisions. You, know, you just, you just remind me of something that, you know, with the testing and, and related to the vaccination is uh, access to that. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was first tested, it was very difficult to find a testing center to do this, you know, much less one that wasn't going to charge you. And um, what, what did, you know, on, on the disability side of things, I, I can imagine must've just been incrementally more difficult. I mean, were, were there any services that were actually going out and making house calls, so to speak, or I mean, what, what was happening, you know, during, yeah, not for testing. Um, they are now, um, we've worked really closely with the Department of Health um, around and having conversations. And um, so they now have mobile, they have a system in place to provide um, mobile vaccines. They, they can go into someone's home that's not able to leave their house to get vaccines and um, vaccinate um, folks. Um, we've been working closely with the Department of Health since the outbreak. 
um, we have a program at um, WASELC, or that's our acronym, um, called the um, Coalition for Inclusive Emergency Preparedness or Planning. And it is a statewide network uh, that specifically has been, we've had this program, it's going on its sixth year, and it's specifically designed for people with disabilities and partnerships with um, other organizations, local jurisdictions, health jurisdictions, and emergency managers to really talk about when, when an, a disaster happens, um, how to include the disability community and how the, the um, coalition can then support these other systems around disability, people with disabilities. Um, and we are one of two states, two or maybe three states in the country that have this kind of network um, in our state so that when we went into stand-up mode, just like emergency management department did um, and the Department of Health did with COVID, we went into stand-up mode. We're meeting weekly to talk about what was going on um, throughout the state and then working with our partners at Department of Health and Emergency Management Department, Red Cross, FEMA, uh, local jurisdictions, and really having that conversation about, um, hey, we're not having effective communication. We need to make sure that when at your COVID testing sites and vaccine sites that you have um, cards um, with simple language and pictures on it for people that um, either English is not their first language or they have an intellectual disability so that they can understand what's going on, making sure that um, sites have uh, interpreters um, for the deaf and hard of hearing community, making sure that, um, you know, all the, all the things that came up, um, you know, they wanted just individuals to go to these testing sites. Well, some people with disabilities needed their, needed a support person to go with them and, um, so we've been working very closely with these entities to make these sites accessible and to get the information out to the disability community. Um, there's a lot of times um, undervalued communities um, will get this information after the fact or later then um, and making sure that we're getting it at the same time. That could be a whole additional topic, couldn't it? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> There's been such a grassroots movement of people with disabilities across the country, really since Katrina, um, that as they saw the, the poor response uh, in the emergency management system to people with a disability, there's been a, quite a movement nationwide. And, and of course, the pandemic just really reinforced this and made it mainstream uh, so that uh, uh, and Part of the one of the players in that, of course, is the medical system, but it's one of the players. There's that all those others that are involved. So it's a, it, because that's that's a whole topic unto itself for sure. That's a really good point, Mark. Because you know, I, I it's funny what with this disease emergency we've had. I've kind of forgot about um, all the other aspects of like I grew up in Florida, and I mm -hmm. should I should think about when you mentioned Katrina. I mean, exactly. I mean, what we you know hurricanes all the time, and you you kind of wonder that. Um, were we prepared for this? You know, were that's what's in, you know, and, and as we move out of it now, I mean, now that we're lifting all the restrictions with only 40% of the population vaccinated, I mean, are we ready to lift these restrictions? I mean, what, when I go into a, when I go into a, a, a business now and should I wear a mask, not wear a mask? How about folks that are compromised somehow. I mean, how, you know, what, what's. I just had a conversation actually with a, uh, a person I know this morning who, um, who is compromised. She, there, she can't get the vaccination because she has an allergic reaction, allergic reaction the, the moment the needle touches and, and she, she to, to any of the contents. Uh, so she's compromised in every sense. And so we were talking about what do you do? How do you can, of course, the, being in, uh, I work in Idaho, so it's uh, it's it's uh, reinforced there with with a whole lot of folks that won't be getting the vaccination. So how do you keep people safe? What is appropriate? And uh, so that that's kind of the moving target, isn't it? Yeah. And are we moving forward with a plan that has considered the population with disabilities or are we just reverting back to where we were beforehand? I mean, have we made any 
are we ready to move forward with this or are we leaving people behind? Well, I think it's, um, it's a good question because I mean, one thing I always say to folks is, is remember people with disabilities are always people first, that, they're, that they, they have varying opinions within the disability community, the same as everybody else has varying opinions. Um, I, you know, I personally will go out on a limb and say that anybody that doesn't get vaccinated if they can, or doesn't take care of other people around them by wearing a mask uh, when it's appropriate is uh, really being rather selfish. Uh, to say the least, you know, so um, obviously I'm a real proponent of taking the steps necessary to keep people safe. But uh, I talk to some people in the disability community who, you know, they're they're concerned. So maybe they're not going to get vaccinated or, or something. So I, the back, unfortunate backdrop is we have a polarized nation and and people have politicized uh, all sorts of medical issues. Um, and it makes the 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 science uh, probably um, one of the least uh, attended to issues in a, in a sense. And so I don't know. I mean, uh, from a medical standpoint, I suspect there's still a lot of caution out there uh, in, the, in most folks. Uh, in a public policy context, I suspect we're moving forward. And so uh, my advice, uh, and I know this person's intent will be to wear a mask when out in public still. And I tend to do that partly just to make a statement because I want to make sure other folks around me are safe. And not to, not to belabor, you know, the COVID-19, but, but I do want to um, ask if, if either of you had any observations about um, how uh, folks with disabilities were treated in the healthcare system. I know, you know, when things got really bad, uh, they were prioritizing um, ventilators and things like that. Any, any observations, any stories, anything you heard about perhaps um, the healthcare system being so stressed that, um, you know, there may not have, I, I don't wanna say there wasn't equal care, but how, how, did, how did the healthcare system deal with all of this? Well, I'll start off with a positive story because I mean, it, this, is, this is a rough time, right? So I'm sure we have a lot more stories where we could have done better um, and also, recognizing that everybody was doing the best that they could because nobody really knew how to, to deal with this, right? No, we, none of us have gone through this before. So I, I, I tend to also believe that people were doing their best and putting their best foot forward. Um, but I also believe that when, when disability isn't always on the table and you're not talking about it all the time in your discussions, whatever realm you're in, medical realm, policymakers, government, if, if, they're not at the table. If you're not at the table, then you're not, you're, you know, then you're not part of the solution. But with that said, uh, <laughs> I know of a person who is um, deaf and um, apparently his um, physician um, provides services to a lot of deaf people and his physician reached out to him and scheduled a, um, appointment for him to get his vaccine. And when he went in for his vaccine, um, what the doctor's office did was, was reach out to all of their deaf um, and hard of hearing folks and scheduled them vaccines within the same time period and had multiple interpreters there for um, the folks coming in for vaccines so that they can get the information and the appropriate way through um, sign language and ASL interpreters um, so his experience was really good. Um, and that, you know, that was that doctor who has that practice um, and understands um, um, the needs and the accessibility needs of his clientele. Wow, that's fantastic. That, that, that is a good story. <laughs> um, that's really good. You know, and I don't want to rain on the parade at all. So um, re reluctantly, I guess I'll ask is, um, you know, you talk about hidden disabilities or invisible ones. And I would imagine that this was a very difficult time with anyone who actually caught COVID-19 if they weren't able to somehow express, you know, themselves to the care community or, or the medical records were not there or just due to the 
um, you know, volume and stress in the healthcare system itself, um, you know, being able to accommodate people, um, you know, both in diagnosis and also just in treatment. I mean, it must have been a pretty, uh, pretty hectic at, at some point. Well, there's um, barriers, I think, on all sides uh, for providers that uh, wanted to provide those accessible services and so on. Uh, being able to find folk, people that, to do that, being able to find inter interpreters, being able to handle the technology, finding um, if they're doing telehealth or offering telehealth, uh, knowing that their patient has the ability to access that. Um, so luckily, that was one of the pushes nationally was to get some money out to try to help people with a disability who were facing barriers because of COVID, uh, not just a medical uh, access to medical services, but access to food, shelter, etc. Um, so we had a number of centers such as ours who were actually helping people get devices, tablets, and so on, access to internet, mobile hotspots, so that they could continue their telehealth. Uh, otherwise, they were going without services. And sadly, sometimes some of their other services were contingent on attending um, class of whether it's substance abuse or, or some other um, service. And so uh, their entire life was in jeopardy because of that access. COVID had a huge impact. There's, there's no question, and it continues uh, to do so. But um, luckily, we're able to do some of those things. We had um, one individual who had COVID, um, and finally, it was so severe that they had to be, um, I believe, airlifted up uh, uh, to Spokane. And ended, but in the rapidity of moving them and so on, they had animals that were locked into their place. And so uh, luckily, a couple weeks later, uh, folks realized that. So these rather um, not doing real well animals were taken care of. The place was a shambles. Um, the person came back. We were able to actually then pay to get new carpet, get all of those things uh, taken care of for this person. Uh, but this is on the top of all of the things of dealing with health that landed them in an intensive care unit and, and an airlift. Um, and then in the process of coming back, having a hotel throw them out because learning of their diagnosis, because some medical people showed up wearing full hazmat gear, um, even, though, even though the health department said, no, they were afterward, they weren't a, a, a risk, but because the particles still show up in the bloodstream, mm -hmm. Then another health provider panicked. And uh, so it was, uh, but I mean, the long story is that it ended up really great. And she got back, got her place and got her pets, pets back. Another donor covered the cost for that and so on and so forth. So people kind of coming together was the good story. The bad story was the disjointed nature of things to begin with. Right. So, so kind of looking at that, um, do, do you think our healthcare system has learned anything from this experience or I mean think thinking about our, our non-COVID just the just the average day in the life of someone how um what what barriers and issues uh do folks with disabilities have interacting with their health healthcare system and, and you know those who you know are are supporting them What's your thought on that? What are some examples of, you know, some of the, you know, the, the barriers that we need to recognize and, and probably work on? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and and just to kind of step away from like COVID, right? Because I think yeah. we're still in it. I still think people are feeling the effects of it. But just in general, people with disabilities and accessing healthcare. So some of the things that 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 I've heard is around um, is uh, having a person with a disability come there with a, with um, or a, a person um, along with them. And then um, having healthcare professionals not talk to the person, talk to the, the caregiver or the personal attendant that's with them. Um, somehow making these assumptions that that because of their physical disability or whatever or or, or cognitive disability or um, brain you know disability that 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 
that they're not talked to. Um, they're, uh, and that happens pretty common in, um, for a lot of, a lot of different folks. Um, so that's, that's generally one that we hear about um, frequently. Uh, another one is uh, when you walk in, you start, you start being treated based on your disability, not on your symptoms. And I think Mark has a, a, a great story about that about, um, and I'll let him tell that if you wanna jump in. And, Sure, I can I can address that. But there's actually just the the other thing I was going to add on right away was a, a term I, I I heard today actually in talking with a friend was uh, visual bias that 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 bias that a, that a practitioner immediately has when they see the disability and not the person. So she's a wheelchair user, and often she's gone in to see a provider, and their first. Uh, move is to say, well, we probably don't have the ability to serve you because we're not a specialist in, in spinal cord injury. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in because I have a respiratory issue going on that uh, is uh, you know, flu or something. It has nothing to do with using the wheelchair, but that visual bias uh, is, is present. And that happens in terms of both just in terms of seeing somebody but certainly in terms of diagnostics, uh, another friend who's a high-level quad uh, went into the and finally was admitted to the hospital, high fever, a um, whole bunch of things going on. And uh, they went through this, then this, and this related to somebody with a high spinal cord injury. And uh, uh, before she nearly died, uh, they finally, somebody discovered, well, she had appendicitis. Um, so there's that tendency to assume the disability is everything uh, or assume that you can't treat somebody with a disability. The other part is barriers are, are that um, a lack of respect for the knowledge of the individual. And some of this, you know, kind of stems from an historic grouping of disability as a medical issue. So disability has kind of been treated as something that uh, should be a part of the medical system, even though it has nothing to do with medical services. So medical people sign off on long-term care services. Medical people sign off on durable medical supplies that really don't require medical, you know, assignment or whatever. Um, all of these things have a medical. So medical folks think that they're supposed to be able to deal with this stuff. Um, and I think that's, that often is a mindset that they go in with. And often a person with a disability, particularly somebody who's you know, 30 years post-injury uh, using a wheelchair, they have more knowledge about their own body and the disability than that medical practitioner will. And so if you can form that partnership, so I know my body and how it reacts, it's not reacting the way it normally does. So what about, is there an intestinal issue? I can't diagnose, you have the ability uh, from your training to help with that. So kind of getting off of that perception of the disabling condition and saying, what's the medical condition uh, is a big part. So I think that being able to develop that partnership, that's where a lot of people run into the barrier. There isn't that. Um, and then sometimes it's just really is something related to uh, a common um, occurrence with respect to, and again, I'll use the example of using a wheelchair because decubitus ulcers. Um, and a lot of times people won't know about how to, number one, recognize when an ulcer is, is beginning or understand how to treat that. And there really aren't good referral mechanisms for that. So people run into that issue. Uh, so a lot of times that, that some of those specialty things still are barriers as well, but uh, that partnership can really help um, alleviate that. Do, do, you, do you think that's a, um, an issue with the educational system for, you know, doctors coming up or, or any, or any, you know, clinician that, um, you know, they're the, the training and the education, um, hasn't really, um, addressed what you're saying at all. They, they look at, they look at someone who comes in a wheelchair as, oh, another thing to fix. And, you know, are there, um, mm -hmm. I mean, what's your thought about that? I, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of validity in that. We tend to try to compartmentalize things. 
And so, so diagnoses have to do with specific, um, um, you know, body functions, so on and so forth. And so we tend to view disability as a part of that. But in fact, you know, if I use a wheelchair and I get around fine and, you know, I've got an issue with my throat, um, there's really nothing having to do with that. That wheelchair is not a medical issue. It's a device that allows me to move around. Um, the same thing with any other kind of appliance that, uh, you know, if I've got an issue with uh, pressure on my prosthesis, uh, then that has to do with the disability. But everything else is a medical issue. We tend to lump them together. And it's not, I think, you know, the medical world's a reflection of the society it's in. We tend to do that as a society. We try to compartmentalize folks. And I love what Kim had said about the intersectionality of disability with every other group. It doesn't matter whether you're male, female, LGBTQ, uh, whether you're a person of color, whatever, what nationality, you can have a disability. And all of these things are going to cross over. Um, so, but we tend to want to compartmentalize. And disability has been compartmentalized as a medical issue uh, for a long time. And so I think that gets in the way sometimes, an expectation that's, that's maybe the way we should respond when, in fact, you know, the life issue is a much bigger issue. Right. And, you know, and, and it brings up something that, that um, I think I've observed, you know, in, in the world of patient safety um, and quality is um, we, over the years, and we've, we've gotten better in the medical community about this, but, um, you know, we're trying to fix and cure a particular moment in time. Um, rather than look at the person's overall life goals. And, and so when somebody comes in, let's say in a wheelchair, the first thought might be, how do we get them out of that wheelchair? Mm -hmm. Rather than asking the person, oh, I see that you're, you have a disability or mobility issue. How are you feeling about that? Oh, I've been this way since I was a child. Oh, really? Uh, well, you know, you've come in with this particular symptom uh, having nothing to do with, you know, your mobility issue. What are your goals? Well, I'd like to be able to make it, you know, to uh, my son's wedding next year. And if my diagnosis is going to prevent me from doing that, you know, let's, let's, you know, work on that. But what are your, what are your overall goals for this person as opposed to what do we need to do immediately to fix you? And, you know, it, it's kind of the same thing. One of the biggest fears that people with a long-term significant disability have is that they will have a medical person or people devalue their life based on the perception of their disability. Mm. You know, your quality of life can't be good. You're a quad, you're quadriplegic. So you have no quality of life. So therefore, and, and, and that fear, that fear of having treatment that's based on that perception. So the treatment is not as aggressive. It's not as positive. It's not as thorough because the life has already been devalued. That's a, that, that's a huge fear that people with a significant disability have. And I've heard that for years. I think it's not only a fear. I think it's, um, I think it happens. Well, yeah. So it's a founded I, I, fear. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a, yeah, I think it does, it does happen. We, we know about that. We know about the gentleman in Texas who got COVID and his life wasn't valued. And basically the, the system took his rights away and then sent him to a nursing home where he could die. Um, it was very well publicized in the beginning when COVID hit. That's, not unusual experience in the disability community. You know, and what's interesting about this is that it, it seems that the interaction in the healthcare system isn't, necess isn't necessarily one of primarily the medical issue. It's really, it's really uh, over, you know, the underlying foundation to all of this is how you perceive and interact you know, with someone mm -hmm. um, who you've compartmentalized or that you feel, you know, doesn't fit into the, your standard of uh, what the healthy person, you know, should, should look like. And, um, you know, it, it, it seems like these barriers and issues really 
aren't necessarily one of how do we uh, develop better treatments for people with disabilities, but more of how do we treat people with disabilities? I don't know if that makes sense or not. Um, you know, how, and how do we inter interact better? Did you, um, where do you think that um, most of these issues in healthcare take place? I mean, we've talked a lot about the interaction at the bedside, so to speak, or with the, you know, right, the one-on-one -on -one with the care provider or the clinician. But do you think the issues are um, focused on, on that? Or do you think it might be something more and, you know, other than care delivery, maybe it's something with policies or as I mentioned in the schooling or post how we handle, you know, post treatment. Um, I mean, where, what are your thoughts about where, you know, where do we need, what are we doing well in, do you think? And what do you, and what areas of the healthcare system do we really need improvements on? You know, is it at the bedside? Is it, is it when the patient walks through the emergency room doors or is it when they're walking out of the hospital, you know, that, or is it during their stay in the hospital that these issues arise with, you know, with the, you know, with, with the community with disabilities? What, what are your thoughts on that? Am I biting well, off more than? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's huge, right? Um, I think the short answer is it's, it's in the whole system. So what you just kind of called out were all the different um, smaller systems within the bigger healthcare system. Um, I don't have a healthcare background or a medical background, so I don't feel like I could like analyze that and make a statement about that. What I can say is it's probably a systemic thing. Um, I think this is very similar to the conversation that you're having with the black community and the BIPOC community at large about how their um, level of care is different than, um, than the white community, just kind of in, in general. And that there's lots of studies and statistics and stuff that, that you have that, that you know this to be true and then, and, and how do we, and how do you address it, right? And how you address it is, is that you have more people of color in positions, um, policy-making positions, um, training positions, sitting at the table, having those discussions um, to make change, right? So it's a systemic change. That's how, that's how you do that. Um, you can't change unless you invite new people to the table and really sit down and have those, those conversations to figure that out. And I think that's the same with the disability community. Um, it's systemic. It's in all of what you talked about. Um, I always believe that there's hope. That's just kind of who I am. Um, that's why I'm, um, I'm here talking with you and Mark today because um, it was, it's an opportunity to talk about disability. It's not an, 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 I mean, and there's some harsh realities to it and some good stories and some harsh stories around it. But bottom line, if this could be an introduction into somebody who's listening to this podcast today to say, oh yeah, maybe we need to have more people with disabilities that are, you know, in those discussions that are doctors, that are care providers, um, that um, are in management at hospitals or clinics or um, that are sitting at the table and bring that perspective or how are we reaching out to the disability community and engaging and eliciting their um, thoughts and conversations to help us better um, manage these systems and include disability conversation. I would hope that you know these are seeds for that, so that there can be change. Because yep. I, I believe the medical community probably wants to change and wants to be better at how they're providing services. That's that's exactly what I was going to say, Kim. Is that uh, that I think a lot of folks within the systems that I talk to get frustrated with the system, you know, in terms of the, the way the framework is set up now. That there's not enough time uh, to deal with wellness. Uh, there's not enough time to to carve out the 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 things that 
that seem like they have more value. And disability is, as I mentioned before, is kind of a subset. It's, it's got a, a, a whole societal view of somehow disability has long been a charitable kind of thing. We see people with disabilities as objects of charity. And uh, it's, we see, again, long-term services as medical services, when in fact there may not be medical issues going on. And so I think a lot of providers would love to have a system where they could actually focus on what they felt that they had been trained to do and not be drawn so much into these other, other areas. And that would coincide. Now, people with disabilities, I, we also have to remember, a lot of folks, they've been brought up in the same system. And so they really haven't had the supports to say, well, you can be your own best self-advocate. You can be in charge of your own life. You don't have to sit back and wait for somebody to prescribe to you what your life had to look, look like. And so that's where we kind of come in with those peer connections of, of, of supporting each other to, uh, to become better patients when we need medical services and be more in control of the rest of our lives. So it's not uh, kind of commingled, but uh, it's it's a it's a challenge. I think that the access to healthcare is so broad. It's you 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 talk about a community. Where are the healthcare providers in a community? Uh, what's transportation like to get there? Uh, is there public transportation in rural areas? Is there any? Is there internet? Uh, if somebody has to do telehealth, uh, and of course we know with all of the different little providers, unless it's profitable. Uh, some areas don't have internet, they don't have cellular service. And until we as a society kind of address some of those things, it puts all of us that do human services in a, a kind of a tough position. Um, so that's, it's, it's how connected are the folks that do the transportation with the people that do the scheduling. Uh, how long does somebody who has to access a medical appointment have to sit and wait for their bus to show up afterwards or something of that nature? So all of those things are intertwined, and yet we don't really spend very much time uh, addressing those connections and seeing how we can make it more efficient. And I think that makes it tough on everybody, patient, provider, and uh, the community at large. You know, and, and I think that the um, historically we haven't fostered that concept of independence. You know, we've, we've tried to keep uh, folks who have a disability or um, captive within the healthcare system. And, you know, you, you bring up, um, you know, you look at policing today, not to change the subject at all, but, you know, there are discussions now that there's certain um, areas that we're starting to believe that it's not a valuable uh, use of time for a police officer, mm -hmm. you know, to be doing like uh, traffic patrol or parking, you know, like, you know, those type of things. And it, it seems like there's probably a better use of the healthcare system than, uh, you know, uh, interact in, in interacting with uh, people with disabilities where there's really no need to. Um, you know, as in they should be fostering that the independence and encouraging, you know, enc encouraging it. Um, you know, it's, we're, they're not, you know, it's not, they're not think. you know, but that concept really wasn't part, I guess, of the thinking his historically. Um, so it is interesting because, I mean, you know, you, you think about the care delivery system. And when I was growing up, and I know I'm, I'm kind of, uh, aging myself here, but I mean, the doctor made house calls and, you know, wasn't that the issue? It didn't matter. Now you're right. I, you know, you go to a major city and all the hospitals are grouped on the big hill, you know, within the city. And I, you know, I always look at that, think, well, that just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I mean, the, the, the first issue is how do I even get there? You know, and when I'm there, how do I even park, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, and it runs contrary to that concept of independence, really, you know, it's almost like our lifestyles are there to, um, uh, help the healthcare community as opposed to the healthcare community helping our lifestyles or so to speak. So, you know, it, it is kind of interesting. Um, I know we want to kind of wrap things up now and I really appreciate you know your time and we've really scratched the surface on a, a lot of this. Um, and I know one of the things that, you know, we want to do is, is follow up with this is, you know, 
provide some resources for people and some articles and things like that, that, that uh, people can come to our website, you know, and look at. Um, I, I guess one of the things that I, I'd like to end this with is, um, you know, kind of getting back to where we were before. And, and, and I, won't, I won't focus on COVID-19, but I think I'd like to focus more on when events, you mentioned Katrina or, or other things, when, when certain events have happened in our society to, to destabilize it or kind of uh, change the way that we've approached things, um, do you think that as we move ahead that um, we've learned anything? And, and, and maybe that's not the right way to say this is, are we gonna incorporate any of the good things that we've done you know, over the last couple of years and build upon our experiences even before COVID-19 with, with the pandemic just being another layer of that um, to make things you know, better as we move forward? And I know you meant, you know, you mentioned about the curbs, you know, and are, are there, are there, are there new curbs that we're going to see, you know, being redesigned moving forward, uh, you know, based on our cumulative experience, you know, over the last several years, culminating with this pandemic? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would hope so. And um, like from historically speaking, it, it's usually the groups in power that make the changes, right? And the, and the groups that aren't in power continue to provide advocacy and, you know, knock on doors and, and get invited to the tables and, um, you know, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, like I said earlier, my hope is always that there will be some seeds because um, we're, I mean, these systems are made up of human beings as well, right? So the more that, the, that people learn and understand um, something that maybe they didn't understand before, then the, there's more opportunity for change um, and, and really thinking universally of all people. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm with Kim. I, I like to think that uh, that some of these changes are lasting. I think we see an interesting, it's been for some time we've been seeing kind of an interesting um, difference between kind of the national uh, view of things and what folks are doing in the local level. In the medical world, I've just been uh, so pleased at some of the new facilities as uh, new clinics. Uh, again, a person I was just speaking to recently uh, has a new doctor, spends time with her, has uh, adjustable height exam tables. Uh, she can get on every piece of equipment, except the mammogram. Uh, mammogram uh, tend not to be accessible. Um, and so she hadn't had a mammogram for a long time, but this doctor finally said, you know, we could do an ultrasound. A lot of people don't know that. They don't talk about doing ultrasounds. They talk about mammograms. Mammogram machines, they aren't accessible. And so she'd had one in her entire life. Um, so, uh, but, you know, the, the folks are kind of getting it. They're doing things. The Americans with Disabilities Act uh, information is out there. Folks are starting to, I think that grassroots effort is really starting to make some changes. We're seeing, I think, medical providers uh, that, um, are becoming more interested in establishing those relationships with their patients um, and not being part of kind of a more industrial kind of complex that, that some of these systems have, have kind of been geared toward um, recently. And so it's similar things kind of on that local level. We're seeing people do things even while there's gridlock in Washington. Uh, DC, for example. Uh, so I think with some of the response in emergency management, responses in this pandemic where people with disabilities have been at the table uh, with emergency managers, uh, with health uh, experts, and so on, we're still working and rolling out vaccination sites, trying to, to uh, talk people into getting vaccinations and finding out what the barriers are to getting the vaccinations to them. Um, trying looking at incentives as a lot of states are 
to help people be safe. There's some new partnerships that uh, hopefully will continue. And my personal hope is that they're going to allow medical folks to com- uh, kind of concentrate more on, on what they do best and draw some of the attention on these other life issues, access issues uh, out into the kind of the mainstream where they should be attended to. Well, that's good to know. You know, and, and, and I know we, we've talked a little bit about bias and perceptions, and I know just in the um, educational programs, the, the concept of implicit bias and uh, the uh, stigmas that, that are out there, um, the realization of those really come to the surface now. And I think there's a self-recognition among healthcare providers that mm. these exist. And there's a, there's a self-awareness that's been created now and people rec- are recognizing it. Uh, I was on a diagnostic, um, improving the diagnostic process uh, conference earlier today. And one of the presenters was talking all about the idea of the bias that you bring in. And so that awareness is now um, transitioning into actual education uh, which is something something good. So it's no longer just uh, acknowledging it, but I think there's activity, you know, to to move forward from there. So so that's so it's good. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. You know, thank you, thank you very much. And uh, would it be okay for me to um, put your contact information in uh, on our website at all? Absolutely. Great. Well, yes. thanks, and thanks for offering, you know, to. Uh, give us some more information. And this, uh, I know will just be the start of our, our initial conversation. And I really want to uh, say thank you for, you know, giving me the time and being involved today. So thank you, Steve, yeah. for inviting us in uh, to the table. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you much. Um, yeah.